Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, we spoke with Mayor Fred Eisenberger about his thoughts on Hamilton's first pot shop and what he expects for the industry in the city. PEI has elected a PC minority government, but they also voted the country's first Green Party opposition. Also, a group of advocates, including scientists, business owners, and environmentalists, are urging that climate change should be the top issue for voters in the next federal election. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. This uh, past weekend, uh, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger cut the ribbon on the first pot shop in the city, and we'll be doing the same for the uh, second one, which is going to open up in Dundas. Uh, There's some feedback coming up and maybe even a little pushback on this, too, so we wanted to bring the mayor on to talk about uh, exactly why he did it and uh, if he's hearing anything about that. So we're pleased to welcome Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger to the Bill Kelly Show on CHML. Good morning, Mr. Mayor. How are you doing today? Uh, pretty good, thanks, Bill. Good. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about this. Uh, there's Andrew Dreschel's piece in The Spectator today uh, questioning whether or not it was wise for you to do this. Uh, this is a new business, and I understand. I'll give you an opportunity in a second here to talk about your, your rationale yeah. for doing this. But are, are you getting any pushback on this? No, I haven't heard from anyone uh, on this at all, actually. And uh, I've, I've uh, actually been encouraged by many in the community that uh, that uh, we want to promote legal, uh, you know, legal consumption and legal purchasing of, uh, of uh, cannabis. And uh, we want to uh, get rid of the uh, illegal shops that are out there. And, you know, as you know, we had some 80 of them at uh, one point in time. We're down to about 10 or so. And, uh, you know, I, I'm encouraging people to get to the legal locations that uh, are now popping up. So one now in the East End, uh, that is, uh, you know, what legalization is all about, to, uh, to have a regulated product uh, that people know is, uh, is produced and uh, is safe and uh, non-pesticide or, I think, uh, pesticide-free kind of environment. And uh, that they can uh, they can buy it legally through those locations as opposed to in the black market. So I want to I want to help eliminate the black market in the in, in this product and uh, encourage people to to uh, consume it legally. Now, having said that, I mean I I went because it is small business in our community. It's a legal, legitimate uh, business. Uh, the, the federal government has legalized the product, and the product's now being sold through the auspices of uh, legalization through the province of Ontario. I expect that uh, when the supply of cannabis, the legal supply of cannabis increases, there'll be more stores available throughout the community. And, uh, you know, it's now an employment opportunity. So, you know, it, it employs about 18 people in this location, uh, you know, much better than living wage jobs, in fact. Uh, and, uh, you know, the whole industry is exploding, and I think we should be part of that. Let's uh, talk about, I've seen some of the comments on social media. I wanted you to address those if you too, if you too, sure. goodness, Mayor. Uh, and, and it's one of the, I think, one of the most misused phrases when it comes to, to public officials, uh, conflict of interest. Uh, you do have shares in, in this industry, not in that store, but in this industry. And some people are saying, well, that should rule you out of doing that sort of thing. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I don't think so. So I, I checked with the integrity commissioner, and uh, you know, previously when it was a private company, I, I declared a conflict in all issues relative to cannabis. <clears throat> and uh, then uh, this company became a public company, so publicly traded. Anyone can purchase it on the the, the stock exchange. And uh, by virtue of that, the integrity commissioner says and has ruled that uh, that, that I no longer have a conflict with for the industry at large. With this particular company, I clearly do, and whenever they uh, their their issue comes to the table here at City Council, I declare a conflict of interest, and as I should. Now, having said that, I mean, we we can extrapolate, you know, beyond this. I mean, I I'm I'm a property owner. I'm a real estate uh, 
property owner. I have a home in the, in the city of Hamilton. Just last Thursday, I opened up a real estate office in uh, in Flamborough. Great, uh, great company. I'll give them a little plug. Uh, the Woolcott uh, Remax location on uh, on Highway Five, a beautifully restored building. Uh, the former Pearson uh, Dairy that was there, and uh, they've they've uh, you know employed some thirty odd people. And I was there to help them open up that location. I also own property in the city of Hamilton. And so does that make me, does that conflict me in terms of being able to go there and say, please, folks, uh, support this industry and, you know, be part of, um, you know, the growth development and the, the job opportunities that come out of that. So we can we can take that to a whole bunch of different areas. And, uh, you know, I could be conflicted in everything I do. Well, and therein lies the problem. And, and because we've heard this from not just yourself, but other public officials as well. And, and uh, I don't have the, the, the protocol in front of me here, but I mean, my understanding of, of conflict of interest is if uh, any individual, any elected uh, official uh, is to gain financially uh, because of something like this. Uh, this is not your store. This is a legal enterprise. And I really don't see that, that people are getting all in a lather about this. Right, and then, and that's 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 really the issue. I mean, if I have a direct pecuniary interest in that store, of course I have a conflict, and I I would be the first person to declare that, and uh, you know, stay away from making any decisions on that. That that would be absolutely clear. I'm I'm invested in the industry at large. I'm not I'm not involved. I actually got involved on the medical marijuana side, and I think, you know, ironically, now that uh, it's been legalized, I've got all kinds of people coming to me that uh, talk to me about self-medicating for pain and for sleep for a whole variety of issues uh, on, on the kind of the medical side, not necessarily on the on the intoxicating side. And I also, at the same time, I want to promote, you know, safe consumption of this product. Uh, you know, this is now out there. Um, you know, as, as Andrew Dressel pointed out in his article, uh, you know, it's a bit of hypocritical that we, we know that alcohol is the biggest problem we have in terms of addiction. Uh, the domestic issues, uh, people intoxicated, driving, you know, the whole range I mean, it's it's off the scale. It it would be like it, out of a hundred, it'd be seventy five, and cannabis kind of triggers at about point zero three percent in terms of problems out in the broader community. And that that might increase as a result of legalization to some degree. But I mean, the product's been out there as long as I've been alive. It's been on the black market. Uh, you and I have been aware of this. Uh, you know, anyone that's grown up in Hamilton or anywhere in, uh, in in Canada or North America, that product has been in the black market for decades. Uh, it is now, uh, you know, out in the open, and I think that's a good thing. And I think, you know, getting people out of the illegal uh, practice, uh, getting them into legitimate, legalized uh, consumption and and uh, purchase from, uh, you know, reputable uh, suppliers that uh, that we can now also tax and uh, and generate revenue from, I think is the right thing to do at this point. Well, and we've talked to some of the people that, that are involved in this industry, and it is an industry. And, uh, mm-hmm. and and these are legitimate people. I mean, you know, like I say, we've talked about myths and I think misconceptions about exactly who users are and who the people are that are supplying mm-hmm. this. And uh, there were some nefarious characters, as you say, in the, in the illegal trade, and they're probably still there, in fact. But the fact is, is this is this is a multi-billion-dollar industry on an international basis, and it's growing. Uh, I, I think the city would be foolish to turn their back on it and say, "Well, we don't want any part of that." Yeah, and I think that's been the issue around the the grow operations as well. There's a, a number of them now in the city of Hamilton that uh, are looking to expand their operations to be able to be part of the industry. And largely, it's greenhouses, so it's an agricultural type of crop. It confuses people a little bit that uh, you know some of it's grown totally indoors, but I think most of it now is going to be in greenhouses. 
uh, probably no different than you know the the, the lettuce crop that uh, that was produced in Linden, and where you know a company just purchased the entire operation is turning it into a cannabis uh, cannabis uh, uh, growing uh, operation. And you know, and I know that there are folks in the community that are that are you know against this, and uh, you know I, I respect that. I'm not I'm not here to promote the industry. I'm just here saying that it's been now legalized and legitimized, and uh, you know it's going to happen. Uh, you know, should we not be a participant in that if that's the case, or should we let it go somewhere else? Uh, it 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 will go somewhere else if we uh, you know close the door to uh, to you know any opportunities in terms of the, the grow operations or the retail operations. Fortunately, council as a whole decided that uh, we were going to opt in, that we wanted to be part of this uh, this overall industry, that we wanted to participate in some of the tax revenue that's going to be uh, part of the benefit, not only on the property tax side, but also on the retail sales excise tax side. So there's uh, there's uh, dollars to be made, and there's also uh, you know a, a legitimization that I think is is a benefit to get it out of the black market, get out get out out of the illegal trade. Get the crime issues out of the out of this process and make it uh, much more out in the open, much more transparent, and much more legitimate. I, I think part of the problem too is when somebody sees a, a public official, yourself or a city councilor, whomever it might be, an MP, it could be anybody uh, in elected office, uh, cutting yeah. a ribbon at something like this. That it's it's an endorsement to a certain extent, but it's not saying to everybody, "Hey, go there and and, and buy this stuff." I mean, if you want, the I think the message here is. If you want to partake, if you are a user, for instance, for medical reasons or for recreational reasons, then, you know, congratulations, here's a place to go. If you don't use it, have a good life. Who cares? Absolutely. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not here to promote alcohol. In fact, I'm, I'm quite against people uh, using these uh, inappropriately. And, you know, again, alcohol is, is one of our biggest problems in terms of consumption and addiction. Uh, there are addiction issues with uh, with uh, marijuana. No, no question about that. Not to the degree that we see in other uh, other drugs or other uh, other substances like alcohol, but but it still exists, and there can be problems, and people need to be aware of that. And I think uh, you know, not having children under the age of twenty one consume uh, this product is, uh, I, th- I think, something we need to continue to talk about. Uh, our public health is going to be very active in terms of uh, you know what what the right way to consume this product is and what the wrong way is. And uh, we need to do all of that that work. But, you know, it, it, it was legalized by the federal government. We are now de- dealing with the outcomes of that. Uh, what's the best course of action given the, given the legalization that we're currently facing? And in my view, it's make it as open and as transparent as possible. And that way we can quickly, hopefully more quickly, uh, delegitimize the black market and legitimize the, the legal market that uh, is now starting to crop up in, in the city of Hamilton. So if people are interested in purchasing this product they don't have to stand on a street corner with a you know a five and dime uh, nickel dealer uh they can go to this legitimate location and uh, and not have to worry about whether they're doing something illicit or not and they also they will also know that this product is produced in a very controlled uh environment uh, and they know what's in it uh you know on the street you have no idea you don't know where it came from, or uh, you know how it, how it got here, and and and, and who's doing the trade. Uh, in in the legal locations, we know exactly who's the who the operator is. Uh, they're a licensed operation. Uh, they're a taxpayer in the city of Hamilton, and they're also an employer. And they've been uh, licensed by the province of Ontario. So through all of that, let's let's promote the legalized approach and let's delegitimize the black market. And, and I know our listeners know this, but just to reiterate, I mean, I'm not shilling for any any industry here either. I, I've never used the stuff. Uh, don't plan to. 
Uh, but I understand that there is a market for this. And with that in mind, where do you see this industry in, in Hamilton's economic future? Can it, can it be a major player? Yeah, well, I think in, in some respects it's already starting to be. I mean, we have no no less than five or six major, you know, grow operations happening. And, you know, agriculture is still a very significant part of our economic development drive. And, you know, we, we don't want it, want it all to be, you know, cannabis, of course. I mean, we want traditional agriculture to continue. We want the wheat crops and the corn crops and the, uh, the dairy farms and all of that to uh, continue. And I think we can be overrun by this. So we have to be careful that we don't, you know, sell off everything to cannabis. Uh, but is is it an element of uh, our you know economic development growth potential? Absolutely, it is. It's a it's, it's a legal business, and as we as we work through the applications that come in for you know expansions and growth, uh, we need to set some limits, but at the same time be open to uh, you know their participation in this worldwide market of uh, of cannabis. And you know, and, and and let's not assume that it's all all to to get uh, to get high uh, you know the, i'm i'm particularly keen on the medical marijuana side and, and now legitimately companies can go and research the various elements of uh, marijuana the cbd product which is non-intoxicating uh, that can help with uh, sleep and, and for the whole range of, uh, of diseases from parkinson's to uh, to muscular dystrophy i mean there's a whole lot of diseases that are getting benefit today and have been for many decades through uh, medically uh, approved uh, and uh, and prescribed um, medical water products and so let's let's uh, let's let's grow that uh, in terms of what the benefits of this great medical marijuana opportunity might be this this is a, an industry that's really in its infancy here in Canada though isn't it I mean there uh, from what I'm told and again I don't profess to be an expert in this there are a, a wide array of products that are available here you don't need to smoke this this product necessarily I know that's the, the image I'm sure that most people conjure up when we have this discussion yeah, yeah. but there are other ways to ingest it and to get it into your body and 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 as we've talked about in this program, uh, given the, the the opioid crisis, which of course is is rampant here in the city right now, it's something that we're trying to deal with. Uh, this is a viable alternative for pain control that might not. You know, obviously, uh, there's always going to be concerns about addiction, no matter what you're taking. But I mean, it's it's a much more viable opportunity or, or or alternative really than some of the stuff that people are getting hooked on. Well, you know, and some of the uh, some of the inferences I hear from our from from our medical you know practitioners is if we if we could get <coughs> excuse me. Some of our, our alcohol addicted and, and you know other serious drug addicted folks onto uh, onto cannabis uh, as a as a as an alternative, uh, we would be so much better off uh, because the uh, the addictive uh, qualities aren't the same, and uh, certainly the uh, the the effect on the on the individual is quite different. It uh, it doesn't bring out hostility in people. It, uh, it tends to make them mellow and uh, and friendly, and uh, and you know the worst that can happen is they they get an unusual uh, you know craving for for potato chips and uh, you know might raid the local variety store i mean the reality is if if we could convert all the alcoholics out there into cannabis users uh, i think we would we would just overall be so much better off do i want addiction at all absolutely not i don't want anybody to be addicted to any any kind of a product and but we know that from cigarettes to to alcohol and everything in between that there is a certain portion of the population that is prone to to be addicted to something and, and ironically, you know, over Christmas, I might have told you this, I, I bumped into some folks in the hospital that were getting some addiction treatment, and the individual that I bumped into was addicted to windshield washer fluid. I'm not kidding. I, and when I heard it, I thought, you're joking. And he said, no, I'm not joking. I'm addicted to windshield washer fluid, and he's after the alcohol that's in it, the very little amount mm-hmm. of alcohol that's in it. 
as part of his addiction issues. So people can be addicted to all kinds of things, and that's a problem. And we want to we want to you know stem that tide and, and help those people get through their addiction issues. But that doesn't mean we eliminate windshield washer fluid in the community. It doesn't mean we get rid of alcohol because it's uh, obviously well 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 entrenched in terms of our society. And and today we're now dealing with uh, you know an additional product that uh, that has many medical benefits as well as uh, social benefits for many people that want to consume it that way. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger. Mr. Mayor, thanks so much for this today. Great, Bill. Thank you. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. There was a provincial election yesterday uh, out in the East Coast. Well, not quite the coast, anyway, Prince Edward Island. Uh, they have elected a progressive conservative minority government. Uh, the story, uh, that's obviously one of the, the headlines, but the other story here is the fact that the Green Party is the official opposition now in the PEI legislature. Uh, the final tally, the Tories had 12 seats, the Greens hold nine, and the incumbent Liberals, uh, led by uh, Premier Wade McLaughlin, have uh, won five. But, uh, actually, McLaughlin lost his seat in that selection. And a couple of things going on here. Uh, another Liberal government goes down to defeat, uh, provincial government, that is. But uh, is this the beginning of a new movement for the Green Party. There are rumblings with a federal election coming up later on this year that the Green Party may actually start winning some seats and make some inroads. Of course, in the last election here in Ontario uh, last year, uh, this province elected its first member of Green, Mike Schreiner, who's the, the head of the Green Party, is the MPP for Guelph. Joining us to talk about this is Peter Grave, professor of political science at McMaster University. Hey, Peter, how are you doing today? Great, thanks. Good. Uh, first of all, were you, were you surprised by the, the results in, in PEI yesterday? Uh, well, if you'd asked me two months ago, yes, uh, in terms of, you know, watching what's been happening the past couple of weeks, uh, uh, no, it's not an entirely surprising result. Some people felt the Greens might actually uh, pull off a surprise victory, but uh, uh, certainly them finishing second uh, was not too surprising in terms of what had been happening in the polls. Is this uh, the, the beginning? I, mean, I don't want to get too dramatic about this, but uh, is there a green wave that seems to be coming across Canada now? Yeah, I wouldn't go that far. I mean, certainly we have been seeing the Green Party uh, doing better than it's done historically. And so, uh, you know, obviously finishing as an official opposition, that's a first uh, in uh, in Canadian history for the Green Party. Uh, but we also saw them, you know, finish third ahead of the NDP in New Brunswick in the recent election. They elected their first member uh, in Ontario. So, I mean, there's been a number of, uh, you know, stirrings of the Green Party. They also have elected, you know, a number of members in B.C. So, you know, there's been some capacity to elect uh, members uh, in the provinces and to take a bigger role. I would say mostly, you know, the biggest kind of breakthroughs in, in New Brunswick and PEI are places where the NDP has historically been very weak. So I think there's a bit more space outside of the two parties for a third party to to develop uh, a place. Um, and, and that's part of, I think, what we're seeing uh, in those provinces, which makes it a bit harder to, to predict uh, the spilling over across all of the country. Peter, this is a, a party that's been around for a while now anyway. Why the allure now? Why all of a sudden are people looking at them as an alternative? Uh, well, I think there's a number of different things going on. Uh, on the one hand, we're at a moment where the old mold of politics is being shaken up a bit. I mean, we see that in the United States with Trump on one side and Bernie on the other. Um, across uh, the West, the traditional social democratic parties have been uh, fairly discredited. Uh, you know, people are looking for new answers in politics, and so I think there's more space then for a Green Party uh, to draw appeal, particularly as we're standing on the precipice of uh, you know an environmental cataclysm in terms of climate change, uh, you know, mass extinction, 
you know, there's a, there's a lot of really uh, troubling things happening environmentally, and uh, that's also showing up in politics where people want to see some action, and they see the mainline parties uh, sometimes talking about the environment, but for the most part doing very little. Well, and therein lies the problem. I mean, if 10 years ago, I guess, if you'd said, well, I'm going to look at green, oh, that's that environmental, those are those tree-hugging party. Uh, but if you look, you know, and peel back a couple of layers, there's a lot more to this party than just the environment. Obviously, it's a key plank in their platform, but there, there are other elements to this, too, that may actually be part of that uh, that gravitation, I guess, to the party as an alternative. Yeah, I mean, uh, again, uh, given our political system, uh, you know, you have to uh, you have to win majority, well, not majorities, but the most votes in a given riding. So you have to get at least to a kind of thirty-five to forty percent uh, proposition. I mean, it's a bit different in Europe, where you've had green parties uh, in a number of places for a much longer period, where a proportional system allows people who really want to make the environmental or peace uh, motivation or anti-nuclear motivation. I mean, they're, they're a bit varied over time and across European countries, but central, and, and you know, you'd have to get probably, depending on the, the system, maybe 5% of the electorate to be getting seats. So, yeah, it's pushed the, the Green Party in that direction, and I think you see in the Green Party, uh, you know, while I think they're strongest where the NDP is not uh, in present, uh, and so they're able to make a bit more space, uh, generally the green activists have been a bit more uh, tied to kind of a small business, uh, uh, sort of professional uh, occupations uh, as a base, and uh, so that reflects uh, in a kind of economic policy, which tends to be a bit more uh, pro-market, uh, the adoption of market mechanisms like carbon taxes and carbon pricing to deal with uh, environmental issues. Is, is it, uh, uh, just on an inter- interesting point a second ago, I wanted you to, to expand on that if you could. Uh, the disenchantment that voters, not just in PEI, but maybe in other jurisdictions as well, uh, the, 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 the problems they're starting to have with, as you say, the three mainstream parties, you know, the Liberals, Conservatives, and, and obviously the NDP, uh, the, I, I think I, I'm getting the sense anyway when I talk to people on this program on a pretty regular basis that the frustration here is that all three of them, they talk the talk, but there's not a whole lot of walk in the walk when it comes to some of the things that I think a lot of people would like to see done, especially with regards to the environment. Yeah, I mean, I think people have kind of uh, mixed uh, mixed views on this. I mean, I, I was reading in uh, the Globe and Mail, I think, uh, Preston Manning doing uh, his... Uh, uh, you know, the after analysis of the Alberta election and said, well, isn't it weird that the NDP chose what was a sort of right-wing policy of a of a carbon tax, but then they implemented it all wrong? And I mean, I think it's this kind of situation where, uh, you know, parties uh, don't really want to take action on things like a carbon tax because they uh, know it hits consumers and probably is going to lead to them losing at the polls in the next election. You know, with the potential exception of BC, that's been the experience in different provinces. So on the one hand, people want action, uh, but on the other hand, they don't have the trust in their governments to see, you know, that if they say pay a carbon tax, that they'll be protected in some other manner. So, I mean, we'll see what happens in the federal election this fall, where the the Liberals have tried very hard to uh, tie having a price on carbon with the idea that people are going to get money back in these rebates. Um but uh, you know, ultimately, I think you, I think people are frustrated with their parties for saying one thing and then not acting, uh, or saying they care about the environment but then really doing nothing about it. But on the other hand, they themselves and their voting choices, at least collectively, uh, tend to punish parties that take slightly more 
uh, aggressive stances, for instance, in putting a price on carbon. But on that issue, and, and I know that you know, we, we've heard rumblings that the environment's going to play a key role in the in the upcoming federal election. As you said, time will tell whether that's going to happen or not. But are we over that hump right now, Peter, of that? Because the argument always against doing something dramatic to try to do something about the environment was what's going to kill the economy. You know, you, you're going to lose jobs. People are going to have, you know, be uh, just racked with debt, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, as you say, BC is a, an example where there's a carbon tax in play there, and it seems to be working to them. I know it's it's not a perfect situation, and it remains to be seen what's going to be happening with the national program that's on here. But is, is there maybe more of an acceptance now from voters to say, yeah, we have to do something? It may not be what I like, and it might hurt me a little bit, but it's for the better good? Uh, among some voters. Uh, you know, and then there's other voters who would like to see things happen, but also are in a tight uh, economic situation and uh, are counting every penny. Uh, so, I, I mean, I think a lot of it comes down to a sense of trust that actually if if a government was going to take action, it would be meaningful action that would produce change. Uh, and that the, uh, you know, the sacrifices that people are making in terms of paying taxes or having to live differently uh, are being shared in a fair manner. And I think to date our, our, our politicians have been unable to really make that stick. Uh, and so I think we're at a, an interesting moment where, uh, you know, parties of the right, uh, which, you know, should have been the most uh, favorable to market pricing of carbon, uh, but have been running against carbon taxes, have to come up with some sort of strategy or plan. And so we'll be seeing that. And I think parties on the left are beginning to say, well, a carbon tax, which is really just about uh, putting costs on our political base, is not selling. And so we need a bigger program. In the United States, you see this around the idea of a Green New Deal and uh, some discussion of that in the Canadian case, where it's not just about putting a price on things, but actually using the power of the state to kickstart uh, living differently, uh, given the extent of the change that's required if we're going to uh, you know, keep global warming under two degrees Celsius. So uh, I think we are in a moment of change in, in our political programs where conservative parties have to figure out what are they going to do. And I mean, we even saw Jason Kenney uh, beginning to say, well, you know, maybe a carbon tax isn't terrible, but, you know, Trudeau's tax is better than not least tax. Maybe we can do better than that. Um, you know, Doug Ford has to come up with some sort of plan in Ontario. Um, but uh, and, and then on the left, uh, moves beyond simply putting a price on carbon to think more broadly about how we could uh, live differently and better by uh, embarking on a more aggressive transition in how we live. Peter, how did the Conservatives get to, to where they are there? As, as you mentioned, and I think people tend to forget that in this discussion, this whole concept of carbon pricing uh, is a Conservative policy. It was developed by, by Conservatives, small-C Conservatives and, of course, large-C Conservatives. Uh, and they seem to, have, as you say, they've, they've pushed themselves away from that right now. And uh, is it because the left embraced it and they said, well, I, we can't have something that the left likes too, so we have to just back away from this? Uh, it, it seems rather odd that they that all of a sudden develop a policy like this. Preston Manning was one of the strongest advocates for it, and still is, by the way. Uh, but other conservatives like Kenny and, and Ford and others are simply saying, no, we don't want to even go there anymore. Yeah, well, I mean, I think... Uh I think electoral success and doing the right thing are not always uh, uh, the same. Uh, and uh, conservative parties in Canada, I think, have really seen that their success at the moment is tied on this idea that uh, since wages aren't going up that quickly, uh, the way to get votes is to do things to promise people that their cost of living is not going to go up. And that means staying away from any kind of form of new taxation. Uh, you know, even one that could allow, uh, you know, for breaks in income tax in, in, in exchange for putting a price on carbon. So uh, I think that's really where our, our conservative governments have gone. It's not about doing uh, the right policy by the climate. 
uh, you know, and, and certainly conservative parties aren't climate change deniers, although, you know, some of their supporters are. Uh, they say, you know, climate change is happening, but then they just feel that they don't have to promise to do anything and they don't pay an electoral price. And uh, uh, as compared to saying, well, we actually have to do something. And, you know, rather than having the state intervene in a heavy-handed fashion, let's use a market-based mechanism so that people's consumption choices are going to, you know, determine what kind of taxes they pay. I mean, you know, we can debate whether that, that actually, uh, you know, reflects people's lived experience, but that would seem to be a pretty strong conservative policy to say, let the market decide, let people's consumption sor- uh, choices decide by putting a price on something. Uh, but again, that, that would involve uh, moving away from this mantra that there should never be new taxes uh, and there should never be anything that might push people's cost of living up. And again, you know, people uh, who are living in tight incomes and are, are reliant on private automobiles maybe don't have a lot of control over how their houses are heated and how efficiently uh, they can see a carbon tax as a potential uh, revenue drain in terms of uh, their household finances. So with that in mind, and, and as you mentioned, uh, obviously what happened to PEI with the Green Party is, is, is I think, noteworthy, but as you mentioned, over on the other coast there, the West Coast, uh, the, the Greens have made some inroads provincially and, and on the federal scene in the last little while. Are, are people going to be looking to that party now? And, and with that in mind, is there more pressure on the Green Party? I, I'm not suggesting Elizabeth May is going to be the next prime minister. I don't think we're going to go that far. Uh, but but are they going to have to now fashion? I mean, you know that old adage: it's easy to it campaign, a lot e- harder to govern. And and if people are going to look at them as an alternative, uh, do they have to tighten up their their policies and make themselves more attractive to, to people that may be disenchanted? Uh, well, I mean, maybe in the long run, certainly in a place like PEI, where as a, the official opposition, they'll have their eye on uh, on governing. And I mean, in fact, they could form a coalition with the Liberals and have enough seats to have the majority. Uh, in the provincial legislature and form a government, but clearly they want to develop that kind of experience. I mean, at the level of uh, of the, the you know the next Canadian election, uh, I mean, again with the electoral system, most people see the Green Party as not viable, short of having some form of proportional representation. I think they'll always run into that that difficulty, and so uh, to campaign, I think they campaign much more as a brand, capturing on the one hand a kind of anti-party feeling. On another hand, trying to capture uh, people who are close to the Liberals or the Conservative Party uh, in, in their overall views, but want to see a, a stronger Green component. Um, so I think that will continue to be the base of the Green Party uh, federally. Uh, and so tightening up policies probably doesn't make a lot of difference because the appeals that are being made to those groups, I think, are much more at the level of, of Green as a slogan. But in places like PEI and uh, even in BC, where the Green Party is supporting an, an NDP government, uh, you know, that participation in governance and that desire to potentially be a government uh, down the road does does require them to, to develop a stronger set of policies and a capacity to convince uh, voters that they aren't just about environmental questions, but more broadly about how could we live in, in a manner that, in a sense, is more ecological across you know, health systems, education systems, uh, economic development, and so forth. You, you make an interesting point. Uh, I, this is a fourth national party. I know there are others, but I mean, you know, with the NDP, the Liberals, and, and the Conservatives on a national level, on the federal level, uh, but you, you pointed that, that, that for them to make these huge gains that, that some people would like to see, I guess, happen with the Green Party, uh, electoral reform has to be part of that equation, doesn't it? I mean, this first-past-the-post is very, very difficult for a fourth party to, to leapfrog over anybody else. Yeah, I would say, uh, and particularly in the case where you have the NDP as a credible party, I think it closes off a fair bit of space where the Green has been able to grow 
in, in, in the eastern provinces. And so, I mean, one thing that happened yesterday is we had another referendum on electoral reform in PEI, which was kind of 50 to 49 in favor of the status quo, so a very uh, close result. Uh, presumably that chapter is closed, but in Quebec uh, there does seem to be some indication that they may go forward with electoral reform under the new uh, the new CAC government. So uh, in that instance, uh, you know, we may see... Uh, an example of a different electoral system in the coming years, and people could judge whether that would actually serve us better uh, federally or, you know, in certain provinces. Well, notwithstanding uh, Justin Trudeau's promise in the last campaign that that would be the last federal election with first-past-the-post, uh, here we go again this October. I, I don't get the sense that any of the major parties, well, maybe with the exception of the NDP, uh, want to go down that road again. It just seems that every time they do, just the, the walls start to collapse around them. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think ultimately most of the province, uh, promises in the past have been made in bad faith. <laughs> it's been a way uh, to deal with, uh, you know, I mean, uh, the change in electoral systems historically in Canada has been based on partisan self-interest. And, uh, you know, parties that form government uh, usually see an interest in sustaining the existing system. And I don't think it's been much different in the case of Trudeau uh, last time out, who saw the promise of electoral reform as a way to get Green and NDP voters to vote for the Liberals, to say, well, yeah, well, we can elect this person and we'll get something that's important for us for the next election. It was a good ploy and gambit uh, for Trudeau, but you're right, it does produce a certain cynicism uh, around parties that make that promise. Well, and you can understand that. I'm not saying it's right, but, you know, whether you're uh, Justin Trudeau, Stephen Harper, or whomever it might be in the corner office there in, in the West Block, uh, there's got to be a little voice in the back of your head that says, that's the system that got me here. Why would I want to mess with it? Yeah, I mean, and in the case of the Liberal Party, I mean, uh, you know, Mackenzie King fooled me with that in 1923. So <laughs> maybe we shouldn't be surprised that Trudeau manages to pull that out a century later and uh, fool Canadians again. Uh, in a case like Quebec, there's a number of parties. Uh, you know, I mean, you have uh, the CAQ party, which, you know, traditionally, uh, you know, up to this latest election was really... Uh, not helped by the electoral system, uh, and a number of other parties who see it in their interest to to, to change the voting system. So we, that may be a case where, independently of what citizens think about it, uh, there's a sufficient political consensus that we'll see change. So I think that will be the, the case to watch on electoral reform in the next four years. Peter Grafe, uh, political science professor from McMaster. Always a pleasure, Peter. Thanks so much for this today. You're welcome. Take care. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Also, I want to talk about the upcoming federal election. And we had a very, very in-depth discussion with Peter Gray from McMaster University about this just a couple of minutes ago, but the possible rise of the Green Party on a national basis. Um, and if that were to happen, as it did in PEI yesterday, it may well be because we as a, as a nation and we as individuals seem to be taking a more keen interest in the environment and, and exactly what's going on now. Well, uh, there is a group right now of uh, advocates uh, consisting of scientists, uh, business owners, corporations, and environmentalists that are urging the upcoming federal election to make climate change the top issue for voters. Not sure if they're going to embrace that uh, or if they're going to do anything about it during their campaigns as they uh, start putting their campaign planks together. Joining us to talk about this idea is Keith Brooks, who is the program director for Environmental Defense and uh, always a welcome guest on the program. Keith, how are you doing today? I am well. How are you doing? Top of the world. Things are going great here. Uh, starting to finally look like spring, so we're feeling pretty good about this. What What are the chances, yeah. uh, Keith, of, of of governments or even potential governments? Since, let's face it, it, it is a federal election that's coming up. Uh, embracing climate change. I mean, they've been talking the talk for the longest time, but uh, well, actions uh, not so much. 
Well, I mean, Canada is actually taking action on climate change for once. I mean, what we've had in Canada is a long succession of uh, different people in government, different parties in power who have said yeah, they've signed on to different international treaties. They've promised that they're going to reduce emissions by a certain extent, but then they've never actually put a plan into place. We have a different scenario now where we actually do have a federal government that has put a plan into place, although that plan leaves a little bit to be desired. But nonetheless, it is, it is progress. And I think that they have made it a key issue. It was even a key issue back in the 2015 election. I think this, uh, the government's in power right now in Ottawa came to power with a promise to fight climate change after you know, a decade of a previous government really championing um, the oil sands and, and the growth of uh, you know, energy superpower status and things like that. So it, it is already a key issue, and we know that uh, Canadians care about climate change a lot. We know Canada's warming faster than other parts of the world. And pollsters tell us that this is going to be a key issue at the ballots in October. It, does the, the carbon pricing policy push it up to the, to, if not the top of the list, near the top? I don't think, I mean, carbon pricing has become a contentious issue that politicians are fighting about across Canada. I don't think it's the issue that Canadians care most about, though, um, unless, you know, they, 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 are, they don't like being taxed, of course, but... It's climate change itself. It's that Canadians are witnessing the impacts of climate change, right? Uh, floods, there's flooding happening in Canada right now, um, and it's going to become a more common thing every spring. We had wildfires here in Ontario. We had fires in D.C., fires in Alberta. We're feeling the impacts of climate change, and we're getting more and more studies that tell us this is going to get worse, that, like I said, Canada's warming twice as fast as the rest of the world. And then we have the, the study out of the IPCC, the International Panel on Climate Change, telling us that we have about 11 years to take serious action. I think Canadians are feeling this. They're feeling the need to do something, and we're looking rightfully to governments to, to lead the way. Yet there are still deniers out there. I mean, well, one of them's in the White House. I mean, we know that already. I mean, And they are seeing some of the same phenomena that you've just described. Uh, I've got friends in Southern California living in the Los Angeles area. Uh, they wake up every day to the smell of smoke because of the fires that yeah. are going on all the way around them. We've seen the flooding and the drought. I mean, the climate extremes that are going on. Yet yep. you've got guys like Trump and, frankly, some people on this side of the border, too, as we know, Keith, that simply say, yeah, I know that's terrible stuff, but it's not related to that. It's, it's, not, it's not caused by human activity at all. I mean, how, I don't know if you're ever going to bring those people to the table. You know, there's going to be some people that are going to continue to deny it, but they are a small and shrinking minority right now. Um, if, you, if you look in Canada, how, what percentage of people believe that climate change is real and is caused by humans? It's a, it's a vast majority. Different polls put the numbers a little bit different, but, but Canadians know this is happening. They know that humans are uh, one of the major causes, uh, if not you know, the main cause. Most Canadians are of that persuasion. And you know, something was interesting is I was in uh, the uh, court here in Toronto last week because the Ontario provincial government is fighting the federal government about the carbon pricing oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, piece. And, and the Ontario provincial government started their arguments to say, we are not here to debate whether climate change is real. We are not here to debate whether humans are the cause, and we are not here to debate whether action is needed. In fact, so the Ontario government accepted all of those things as being true. So they're not even denying climate change. They're not denying that government needs to take action. They were just you know, having a, 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 a political battle about the Constitution, yeah, and and obviously their their opposition to this thing, and you know the the thirty million dollars that the Ford government's de- just decided yeah. to spend on this thing, uh, we I don't want to get on that road. We could spend an hour and a half talking about how fruitless that's going to be and what a waste of money. But anyway, be that as it might, 
Uh, and the fact that they really haven't presented a very viable alternative, at least in my opinion anyway, to the carbon taxing. And, and you're, you're absolutely right. The first point in this, of course, is nobody likes to get taxed. I mean, that, that's the, the whole essence of, of, of the opposition, I think, that we're hearing about this. But are we at that point yet, Keith, where people are saying, look, I know I don't like to get taxed, but boy, we got to do something and maybe this is the solution. Yeah, I think there's, again, a majority of Canadians uh, that do support that policy. I mean, nobody wants to be taxed. Nobody wants to pay more. Um, but if we listen to the arguments, we know we need to do something. Economists tell us this is the most cost-effective thing we can do. And if we look at it also, it's a really small price to pay uh, to get started on something. We need to, we need to do more. But, uh, you know, the, the polls tell us that the majority of people do support this policy. The problem is, is that it's it's divisive, right? It's It's a good... A wedge issue for politicians to use because the people that don't like it, you know, really don't feel strongly about their opinion. So it's a, a bit of a polarizing policy, which is which is too bad. But it's going to drive us, I think, maybe as a country towards uh, a key decision. Right? Are, are we going to take this issue seriously, or are we not? And that's what this open letter and a bunch of other folks are saying is that this is a critical moment here for Canada. We decide: are we serious about climate change? Are we committed to taking action? Or are we kind of, you know, so-so, yeah, we care, but only so much. Well, and that's the thing that I think concerns an awful lot of people that do share that concern, is that they they still not necessarily cling to some of those old-style arguments that, that have been proven to be untrue. Uh, but but they still look at that as saying, well, that's why we don't need to be extreme about this. And and one of them now, of course, is the very essence of what we just talked about. Well, if the United States isn't doing it, they pulled out of the Paris Accords. Why should we do it then? I mean, because it's fruitless. Why why should we cut down on emissions if China and India aren't going to do the same sort of thing? It's a silly argument, but some people still think it's a valid argument. Yeah, sure. I mean, people will grasp at any argument that you know would allow us to not make the changes that we need to make um and so pointing to other countries to say well they're not doing it so therefore we shouldn't um you know is one that they hold on to but you know canada is one of the top 10 emitters in the world we have the highest per capita uh, emissions in the g7 um and if we don't have a responsibility to act what do we tell the other 190 or so countries that emit less than us they don't have a responsibility either i mean climate change is a collective action issue we everybody needs to pull their weight. Everybody needs to take action. Every country, every individual, every, every business, quite frankly. Um, it, is, it is something that, you know, kind of all hands on deck here. And then, you know, some of these big emitters, the reality is the United States cannot pull out of the Paris Agreement until after the next election, the next U.S. presidential election. So they've said they're pulling out, but they haven't. And emissions are actually coming down in the U.S., in part because coal power just is not economical anymore. Uh, and so people are getting rid of coal and also electric cars. People are buying electric cars. There's all kinds of things that are just happening on their own. They need to happen more. They need to happen more quickly. It needs more investment. But good things are happening. Emissions are coming down in the States. And then we have pretty strong commitments from, from China and India both to reduce their emissions as well. It's going to take them a bit longer because of where they're at in their developmental you know, stages. But there's strong commitments out of those countries. Air pollution is you know, a, a major concern in China. And we've seen that. I mean, there are people walking around in, in, in cities like Beijing that they, they have surgical masks on simply because they don't want to breathe the air that's there. And in the constant smog, I mean, the sort of thing that you used to see in Los Angeles on a pretty consistent basis. So they're even getting the message. Uh, so I, I guess, you know, to take this back to what might happen politically as a result, uh, do we get commitments from all three major political parties? I mean, we know where the NDP are on this. We pretty much know where the Green Party are. 
Uh, the liberals have already made their stand and stuck their flag there with their carbon taxing. Uh, conservatives, not so much. And, and, you know, there's a possibility, I mean, who knows what's going to happen in the election, that they could form the next government. Did, does that mean a backward step when it comes to environmental responsibilities? Well, I mean, we certainly hope that all parties put forward a credible climate change plan. Um, we hope that all parties, uh, all federal parties, commit to moving forward on, on the Paris targets that Canada agreed to, you know, to try to limit climate change to 1.5 degrees, to do our part to do that. Um, yes, we know uh, some of the parties have come out with uh, pretty uh, good plans, um, but not, not all have yet. Um, some have committed to that target. Not all have actually committed, have put in, have, have actually done the work to write up, like, how are we actually going to go to that target, right? How are we actually going to reduce emissions to the extent that we need? But we're hoping that as we come to the election that we do get that from, from the different parties. Um, otherwise, Canadians are going to be faced with a, a very stark choice, you know? Are we choosing to, you know, move towards a safe future? Are we choosing to fight climate change and seize the economic opportunity that's that's in there, or are we keeping our heads in the sand? Are we turning our backs on our responsibility? Are we shirking our responsibility? And, you know, being open to the idea that the future is going to be a pretty scary place for our children. Keith, what about individual responsibilities? I mean, obviously, we, we try to do our part, you know, in a household, whether it's, you know, recycling, whatever, cutting down on carbon emissions, uh, you know, cycling, public transit, all these sorts of things. But but let's face it, if we want the federal politicians to react and to act on these issues, it's really going to come from public pressure. I mean, they, they react to public pressure, obviously, because they want to get elected. Uh, are we doing enough to pressure them and to get that message across? I know cities like Hamilton, of course, have already passed motions at their city council about the, the, the climate emergency. I think Ottawa is actually going to be debating that with their city council yeah. later on today. Uh, but does does that have a, 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 an impact? Is it resonating up in Ottawa at the federal level? Yeah, I, I think it does have an impact, and I think that it is resonating. And we hope that we see more and more of that. And I think you're you're right when you talk about individual responsibility. Yes, we have to do what we can. We should be insulating our homes, and we should be, you know, carpooling or thinking about that our next car is going to be electric car. Or we're taking transit. We're riding our bikes. All those kinds of things. And those are the two biggest sources of emissions from individuals: is transportation and the buildings that we that we inhabit. But ultimately, like this, we talk about this lack of political will as though it's something that governments can just summon up, but they can't. It actually comes from the people, right? The people need to demand this of their governments. We create the political will. So we need to tell our politicians that we want serious action from them. And one thing we can do is, yeah, pass motions in, in city council halls to declare a climate change state of emergency. Or we can go, you know, email, phone, uh, go get a meeting with your elected officials. Tell them that you care about this. Ask them what their plan is. And we hope that there are, you know, hundreds of, of people, thousands of people reaching out to their elected officials to tell them exactly those things, that they care about the issue they, they want that, that party or that individual to commit to action, to commit a plan. Uh, we hope that there's going to be a lot of a vibrant debates about this as we head toward the election, because this is a key moment, and we cannot go backwards on this. We, we have to go forward. We have to do more than we're doing today, uh, and, and the election is going to be a key moment when we kind of make that decision collectively as a country. And I think that was part of the concern we had uh, when the Ford government took power last year, of course, when they, they canceled a number of those initiative programs uh, that uh, that were encouraging people to do the sort of stuff that you've talked about, uh, you know, whether it's around the House or whatever. 
Uh, and, and, you know, we, okay, are they committed to it or not? Because that really seems to be the, the carrot that I think moved a lot of people in that direction. But, heck, I, I saw yesterday, uh, Keith, even uh, Jason Kenney, the, the newly elected premier of Alberta, was even musing earlier this week about the idea of a carbon tax, thinking maybe it's not a bad idea. I don't know if they're going to go there. Uh, as Rachel Notley did, but I mean, that seems to be on their minds right now as an alternative. Well, I think even a government like that, and like the government we have in Ontario, they know they have to do something on climate change. And so they're kind of muddying the waters a little bit because they're going to say, like I said, when they, when they went to court, they said, we're not going to debate whether this issue is real. We're not going to debate whether we need to do something. Uh, and so then they claim that they are doing something when in reality, I mean, it's not just are you doing something about climate change? The question we have to, to ask and needs to be answered is, are we doing enough? And Ontario, in our, in our opinion right now, is not doing enough. Uh, the new government has weakened the targets from the old government, and they talk proudly about a climate change plan, but the plan really lacks rigor. There's no math behind the plan. So there, it, it's unlikely that it will get us to the new, weaker targets that this new government has committed to. And like you said, all the programs that were supporting individuals and businesses in making the changes that we need are gone. Um, so, so they're trying to muddy the waters and say, yes, we care, yes, we're doing something, but really they're not doing enough. And I think the same thing could will likely be seen in Alberta, that we have a government who says the issue is real, we're doing something, so leave us alone, when in reality they're not doing nearly enough. Keith Brooks, uh, Program Director for Environment Defense. Keith, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this. Uh, we'll see what Ottawa does today and how the federal government reacts. Uh, appreciate the time. Though. Yeah. Take well, care. Thanks for your interest in it. Okay. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.